It's hard to overestimate the influence of Dracula, within literature itself and even beyond. Countless novels, short stories, TV shows, and movies have all spawned from this one lone novel. As the authoritative work, it defined the nature of the vampire, and in doing so, it has captured imaginations, chilled spines, and inspired artists for over a century. In terms of origins, it's impressive that Dracula even exists. Bram Stoker, the author, had a full life, even aside from his literary endeavors. He was the personal manager of the actor Henry Irving, which involved enough tasks of its own, in addition to managing Irving's, Irving's London Theatre, at one of the most successful theatres in all of London. Plus, he was a family man to boot. He had a full life, and yet somehow, he managed to piece together enough scraps of time across a few years to craft this manuscript. In the summer of 1897, Dracula was published. Truth be told, while the novel was warmly received and praised in its own day, what really catapulted its status over the long haul was the 1931 cinematic adaptation Dracula, starring the Hungarian actor Bela Lugosi. Since the release of that film to massive popularity and acclaim, Dracula has never ceased to see the broad, burning, glaring light of day. But for all of the popularity and influence, the question still remains what to make of it. My two cents are that several themes exist that are all worthwhile studies. However, most prominent among them is the novel's suggestion that we reconsider our perspective concerning those we deem to be villains in our own lives. Because if we only knew their whole story, we might think differently. I'm your host, Trevor, and this is the From Argyle Street Podcast, where we're breaking down one great work of fiction at a time. And today, we're looking at the classic novel, Dracula, by Bram Stoker. All right, story recap. Let's just get a quick flyover here of the story itself. As an epistolary novel, Dracula has a unique literary construction. It's told entirely from documents written by the characters, including diaries, letters and telegrams, and even a ship log. Stoker's feat in design is impressive, crafting this novel like an architect, fashioning each document in its proper voice, and then organizing them perfectly so that the narrative unfolds naturally for the reader. This is a particularly inventive strategy for a horror story because it enables the story to be relayed through multiple points of view that all have limited knowledge. There's not one person narrating from some finished perspective. They're all figuring things out as they go, and there are moments where you as the reader know more than they do because you have all the documents. That is used to create some uh, pretty good tension at some different points. But furthermore, this strategy creates the ability to draw documents written earlier in the story, like Jonathan's Har Jonathan Harker's diary, uh, into the narrative later on. It's a brilliant style that adds so much tension and nuance. Now, onto the story itself. The intro. This is Jonathan Harker's diary, chapters one through four. The first four chapters are really just uh, Jonathan's entries into his diary, recording his journey to Dracula's castle in Transylvania and his experiences once inside. On his way to the castle throughout Transylvania, he's warned several times not to go, yet he persists on his business anyway. Once inside, he quickly learns that he's trapped and slowly begins to comprehend the fullness of the nature of his captor. 
This section bears an overwhelming sense of doom and sets the tone for the entire novel. It ends with a cliffhanger as Jonathan Harker struggles to know whether his sanity is still intact or not and records his intentions to make one final attempt at escaping the castle. Then, the next chapter transfers our attention to England without word or hint as to what happened to Harker. The second section, what I'm calling the Fall of Lucy Westenra, chapters 5 through 16, kind of the biggest section within the book. At the, at the close of Harker's diary, we know one certain thing. Dracula is coming to England. This new section opens by introducing new characters and establishing the relational connections between them. For example, we meet Lucy Westenra through her own diary, and we get to read her exchange of letters with her friend Mina, the fiancé of Jonathan Harker. Early on, we learn that Lucy is the beloved of several men since she receives three marriage proposals in quick succession from three different men. Quincy Morris, the American, who is a man of few words, Dr. John Seward, who studied under the renowned Dutch intellectual Van Helsing, uh, and who runs an insane asylum and has been dealing with one particularly interesting patient named Renfield, who plays an important role later on. And then finally, Arthur uh, Godalming, an, an English aristocrat who gains the title of Lord throughout the novel. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce the name, Arthur G. Uh, maybe I'll just say Arthur G. throughout. But these men are all friends, but they all share the same love for Lucy. And she turns down Morris and Seward, but she accepts the proposal of Arthur G. And then trouble strikes. Mina, uh, Jonathan's fiance, visits Lucy Westenra in the seaside town of Whitby, which just so happens to host one of Dracula's properties, Carfax Abbey. One day, in a horrid, foggy storm, an unmanned ship, wobbling about at the mercy of the wind with full sails arisen, wanders into the port. When the ship miraculously lands, a large dog bounds off and sprints across the countryside. When the ship is boarded, a ghastly tale is uncovered. Only one man is on board, and he's dead. His lifeless body leans against the mast because his wrists have been lashed to it. In the ship's log, they find a mysterious account of, what's tra of what transpired. One by one, the sailors slowly disappeared on the journey, without any explanation, until every last one was gone, save the man at the mast. As the reader, you know what they don't. Dracula has arrived in England. The thread that connects Dracula to Lucy is her unfortunate weakness for sleepwalking, which makes her easy prey. Dracula finds her alone outside one night and drinks from her veins. From that point forward, he continues to satisfy his thirst on her blood, and each time, her health fails considerably. Dr. John Seward learns of her struggling health and tries to help. Eventually, he sends for Dr. Van Helsing, his old and beloved teacher, to come to his aid. Van Helsing arrives and conducts several transfusions of blood to help Lucy, drawing from the veins of Arthur G., Seward, Morris, and himself to supply her with the resource she'd been drained of. In the end, she dies, but she doesn't stay dead she becomes a vampire. Van Helsing suspects this and concocts a strategy con to convince the others. Once they're all on the same page, they perform the necessary deeds to set her soul free. This involves uh, a pretty brutal process, basically stabbing a wooden stake through her chest, stuffing her mouth full of garlic, and severing her head from her body. Pretty gruesome, but through this, her soul is set free and her afterlife is restored. 
And so, just to recap, at this point, a woman the characters all love has been lost forever. Count Dracula is still at large in England, and they are all finally convinced that he is a reality. Uh, in light of all of this, they vow to rid the earth of this monster. However, before they can, in a quite unfortunate manner, the stakes are raised once more. The third section is The Fall of Mina Harker, chapters 17 to 21. To start this section, the men make a huge, gigantic blunder. They decide the burden of their quest is too much for Mina to bear, and so they choose, they opt, to keep her in the dark. They don't involve her in any of their conversations or tell her anything of what they're doing, and in doing so, they make her incredibly vulnerable. And Dracula takes full advantage. Throughout this time, Mina is staying in the home of Dr. John Seward, his home exists in the same building as his asylum, which hosts the patient Renfield. This is significant because vampires cannot enter a residence until they've been invited in, but one invitation is all it takes to be able to come and go as they please. Renfield provides that invitation. Dracula gains access to the building and preys upon Mina. In fact, he even forces Mina to drink his own blood, something Van Helsing refers to as the vampire's baptism in blood. Following this, Mina begins to transform into a vampire even prior to her death. The men soon realize their error and learn of Mina's fate. The stakes are all the higher now because unless they are able to destroy Dracula, Mina too will be lost forever to vampirism. Uh, the fourth section now, Pursuing Dracula, chapters 22 to 27. A few important aspects of the vampire's nature play into this final section. First off, soil. In order to sleep, the vampire needs soil from its native land. Therefore, Dracula needs Transylvanian soil in order to sleep. Without it, he's hopeless. Second, water. Vampires have a limited ability to cross running water. They can only do so at low and high tides, or at least that's what Van Helsing thinks. It's one of the things he's kind of uncertain about, but we do know that Dracula can't just turn into a bat or a mist and fly away. He needs to be carried across by someone else, uh, it seems. And because of these realities, Dracula's plot to expand his territory involved shipping coffins filled with Transylvanian soil and dispersing them among several properties he purchased throughout England. Van Helsing and company locate these coffins and place holy wafers within them, effectively destroying them. Dracula can't use them anymore. And because of the success of their efforts, Dracula is eventually forced to flee with his one remaining coffin, kind of an escape hatch for him. He finds his way aboard a ship and rests inside his coffin on board, uh, awaiting to be taken back to Transylvania. And if not for Mina, they could have just let him go. But for her sake, because of what he's done to her, they must now follow him back to Transylvania and destroy him there. Through this section, there's a connection between Mina and Dracula formed because of Mina's baptism in blood. Dracula is able to draw information from Mina, but she is also able to draw information from him too. And this allows them to figure out Dracula's plan and trace his travels. Using this information, they sail to Europe and board the Orient Express train in pursuit of his ship. Eventually, they separate into different parties, but then all gather again in the final encounter just outside Dracula's castle. A group of peasants are attempting to deliver Dracula's coffin back to the castle. They surround the peasants. The sun is mere seconds from setting, upon which Dracula would awaken to his full strength and overpower them. 
They battle through the peasants, flip the lid from the coffin, and just as the sun dips beneath the horizon, they stab Dracula through the heart and sever his head from his body, defeating this centuries-old foe once and for all. His body quickly fades, crumbling into dust. All right, the final section, the resolution. Just a quick note right at the very end of chapter 27. One final note, added seven years later, provides a quick summary of what's transpired since these awful events. New relationships and families have formed. Everyone is well. A record is provided of how the manuscript was compiled as well. The characters themselves splicing the pieces together. Uh, this is basically just Stoker bringing everything to a quick close uh, and providing an explanation as to how the book actually came together. And with that, the narrative closes. All right, an interpretation on the origins of monsters. This is a quote uh, coming from the, basically the end of the book. This is Mina Harker's record of Dracula's death. As I looked, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the look of hate in them turned to triumph. But on the instant came the sweep and flash of Jonathan's great knife. I shrieked as I saw it sheer through the throat, whilst at the same moment Mr. Morris's bowie knife plunged into the heart. It was like a miracle, but before our very eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. I shall be glad as long as I live that even in that moment of final dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace, such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. All right, certain works lend themselves to thematic interpretation better than others. Literary fiction, uh, in my opinion, is the, is the genre most well-suited to it, which many of the classics belong to. But that doesn't mean the approach can't be applied beneficially to other genres as well, including those belonging to the realm of literature that could be titled Monsters Lit. Now, Dracula in some ways belongs to both of them. It's considered a classic, uh, and yet it is a horror novel uh, that you could classify as Monsters Literature. Now, when it comes to Dracula, one important question to consider might be, have you ever had an enemy? Has there ever existed some person in your life who would so hurt you that the sole stance of your heart towards them was hatred, the villain in your story? The primary theme of Dracula deals with just such a person. Jonathan Harker's diary of Dracula's castle is the hook that catches our attention in the very beginning and introduces us to our monster. But following this, the next section of the book develops all of these relational connections, allowing us to meet and even become attached to these characters. Then, tragedy befalls one of them at the hands of our monsters of our monster. Lucy's death and uh, vampiric transformation that occurs, that happens to her, those things teach us to hate Dracula because of the loss suffered at his hands. However, we also see the suffering that Lucy endured in her transformation, and we see her death as a vampire, as an act of mercy that sets her soul free for eternity. With this, the angles for mercy are all present, but they've not yet been considered when it comes to Dracula. They kill Lucy out of pity and out of love. They seek to kill Dracula from hatred alone. Then, Dracula preys upon Mina, and their hatred rises even further as their passion to destroy him becomes desperate and all-consuming. During this section of hunting Dracula, Mina first begins to consider a more merciful angle toward their enemy, and she speaks it aloud. 
she recognizes that Dracula too was once a man, a person. And to that end, Van Helsing even gives his two cents as to who Dracula was before he became a vampire, someone known as Vlad the Impaler, who is an actual real historical person. Uh, who actually was quite uh, the guy himself, a little bit of a monster. But for the sake of our theme here, uh, all of these things are brought forward in order to humanize Dracula as an enemy, right? Mina begins to do this, humanizing him as her enemy and to understand that the vampirism that has preyed upon her and even upon her friend Lucy has preyed upon him as well. And for that reason, killing him, Though the motivation might be hatred, is actually an act of mercy, of love, and even of pity, because it is the only action that would set his own soul free and finally allow him to rest. This theme is driven even further in the account of Dracula's death in the quote read just above just a, a minute or two ago. Seconds prior to his death, hatred alone fills his eyes. But at the moment he actually dies, just before he crumbles into dust, peace washes over his face. The novel's suggestion seems to be that if we have experienced monsters in our lives, people who have hurt us beyond reason, it's likely because something monstrous happened to them first. And our interaction with them has led us to hatred, to resentment, uh, to bitterness, to all kinds of things. But if we only knew their entire story, we might think differently. Not that that removes any responsibility for their actions, but it does enable us to take a more grounded stance towards them. At the very least, Dracula teaches us to insert a seed of doubt between our judgment concerning someone and the certainty of our understanding. In the case of Dracula, whether hatred or love was their motivation, they still would have sought the same end, the destruction of this monster. The case may often be the same with us as well, that we still set the same boundaries. But what Dracula may alter for us, should we heed its message, is the emotional underpinning behind our actions. This alone could have very significant consequences in shaping the role we play in the stories of others. Otherwise, living from a place of hatred because something monstrous happened to us is one surefire way to become monsters ourselves. Whether or not people understand the, full, the fullness of what occurred in our own lives, whether or not they understand why we continue to pass the pain forward that others inflicted upon us. Choosing to hate our enemies is the fastest route to becoming exactly like them. Because anytime a monster exists, we can know something monstrous happened to create it. Meaning if we wish to not become the villain in someone else's story, the only way is by dealing well with the villains in our own. Closing thoughts, reconsidering villains. This is a quote from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, quote of Jesus of Nazareth. He says this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That being teaching uh, provided in the Old Testament. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven love your enemies. Due to the nature of monsters literature, Dracula doesn't offer us many tips in the way of practicing charity or love towards our enemies. Garlic in the mouth and steaks to the heart are not the most helpful ideas, but one avenue I found particularly helpful is prayer. 
and I just want to recognize that you may or may not subscribe to a belief system that affords a place for prayer, but there's still something to be gleaned from the idea that one concrete way to seek the benefit of someone who's harmed you is by praying for them. Whether prayer is actually effective or not, which I believe it is, but whether or not doing so on somebody's behalf can only be for their good and can never harm them. So there's no real risk. I personally have found the greatest effect it often produces in these kinds of situations is healing the heart of the one offering the prayers. Our prayer, more than anything else, has helped me to let go of anger, to let go of bitterness, and to let go of resentment that I've held onto towards others. Because prayer gave me a way to seek their benefit while still holding necessary boundaries and slowly, over time, to release what I had gripped so tightly. In that regard, perhaps the most significant way to free yourself from the clutches of some real villain whose influence continues to hold sway in your life even if they were removed from it long ago is by praying for them. That's why my recommendation for making use of what Dracula teaches is is prayer, and in particular, prayer for the villains who've haunted your own life.